0: What exactly is the gospel? Because I hear what you just say, but I also know what Paul Washer says. I know what Shane Claiborne says. I know that the Eastern Orthodox Church is a very different take. I, I know that, that, that there are several different atonement theories about, about what the cross signifies. And many, several of them are not about the wrath of God being poured out or God paying the penalty for my sin. There's ransom theory, et cetera. So, you know, I just want to point out, like, I, I, I you tell me, like, is that saving what you just said, right? Uh, what the gospel is? Is that an objective reality that was held by all Christians for all time? And if someone didn't hold it, they're in hell right now?
1: Well, often I think that uh, man, we are really good at talking about people on the other side, doing shows, talking about what people believe that may disagree. And, and there's some value to that. I think that we sometimes need to do a better job at talking with people who are maybe on the other side or disagree about issues. And so that's what today's going to be. today's going to be a really fun conversation with my guest, Tim Whitaker of the New Evangelicals as we just kind of talk about faith and culture and our two different perspectives on how Christians should approach and look at these different issues. And so well let me I'll do the background in a second. but first of all, Tim, thanks for joining me.
0: Mm-hmm. It's good to see you again, Ryan and it's great to be here, even though I told you before we started recording I just got diagnosed today with strep throat, so my my throat feels like I have a golf ball inside of it, so <laughs> if I wince whenever I swallow friends it's not because I don't I don't, I don't I, it's not because I think Ryan is that repugnant okay I don't think that at all <laughs> it's because my throat is killing me so i want I want to preface that from the onset
1: <laughs> yeah and i I appreciate it and uh and thank you as I said before, thank you for taking the time even with that to 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 continue on and do this show. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation because as you might've seen in the thumbnail, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, Tim and I have known each other. For over 10 years, he came when I was a missionary down in the Dominican Republic. I lived there for four years as a missionary. Tim came down in probably about 2012 on a mission trip to work alongside of us. And then when I was back in the United States in the fall of 2013, I traveled out to where Tim lives, stayed with him. We went and toured New York City together. So the picture in our thumbnail is us on the top of the Empire State Building, just me trying to soak up that New York City experience. And so So uh, that was in the fall of 2013. We kind of lost touch. I left the mission field. I got involved in stuff. Didn't see you around. It wasn't until I think you started commenting on some Sean McDowell videos. I'm like, (laughs) Hey, I know that guy. And that kind of spurred our conversation as we both kind of had gotten into this world. So, um, so yeah, we 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 send sixty second voice memos back and forth on Instagram, and that's been the extent of a lot of our
0: conversations like, like as we maniac. throw out different we are, ideas. We're unhinged, Ryan. We're unhinged. You know? Yeah,
1: you, you get quick shots, and you come back with sixty second responses, and and that's been our conversation for the last while. But I I enjoy it because you you're someone. The reason I want to invite you on is you're someone that um, when I see sometimes uh, things a Christians talking in certain ways or something cultural, sometimes I'll throw that out at you and say, Hey Tim, I'm curious to get your perspective on this, or you're you're always willing to engage me when you post a video and I push back and say, hey, I don't know about that if that's right. And, and we we talk through it. And so I've always found that we have a very good, respectful conversation. And so I wanted to bring you on to have that for everybody else and hopefully model how to disagree well, but then also give anyone watching kind of some different thoughts on how Christians look at different issues. So I'm right. Looking forward to I'm today. in. Let's yeah. do it. All right. So maybe let's just start quick with your story. Um, as I mentioned, you you, uh, you grew up in the evangelical church. You went on mission trips. That's how we met was on a mission trip. Yeah. Um, and then now you you don't define yourself as an evangelical. Your, your, your ministry is called the New Evangelicals. Kind mm-hmm. of tell me, walk me through that journey and kind of how you view yourself or how you kind of see things currently today.
0: Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, I, I am a product of uh, the conservative evangelical ethos. You know, I was homeschooled uh, for most of my life, went to a small private school. Where, where actually, it's where, where I met the person that I was on the mission trip with you uh, decades later. Yep. Um, very much involved um, in church early on, um, started playing drums early on in the church. And that really, I, I cut my teeth doing drums in church. So uh, yep. shout out to all the people who heard me play terribly for so long. But it paid off because I ended up playing professionally <laughs> for a long time. And I you know, I wanna just be really clear. Like I'm I'm someone who always and so to this day wanted to take my faith very seriously. You know, my, my whole motivation was how do we love God? How do we love people? How do we understand the Bible? How do we understand the Christian tradition? How do we better love our neighbors? I mean, even the the background to our mission trip, right? We, we, we were working with a, a private Christian school, helping this staff be equipped just with like some, some potential leadership um, ideas and motives to better love their students, just to love them. There was really no agenda. Yeah. It was just, here's what we're doing. So that was always my my baseline, you know, and I read widely for evangelicals, right? So I was reading some Rob Bell. I was reading uh, Paul Washer and folks like Brian McLaren and and Paul Washer's a very, um, you know, I don't know, conservative reform type of person. Yeah. He went, he went famous for doing a sermon where he's talking to youth group kids. He makes a comment about how, if we don't like love, know the gospel or love it, we're going to burn in hell forever. And the kids clap and he goes, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking to you. And the room gets real <laughs> silent. So I'm listening to that like, yeah, I want the true gospel. So that that was my life. And it still is just in very different ways. I would say there were a lot of small things that made me kind of think, huh, that's kind of odd or "This this doesn't really fit in with like what I'm I am thinking about when it comes to being a Christian or being loving to people, et cetera. And then I I would say, and this is a very common story for folks who tend to end up deconstructing at some point, you know, 2016, that election cycle, I think for me was the moment where I went, you know, um, I could ignore a lot in my faith tradition. Um, I can ignore why we always, um, (laughs) excuse me, um, are waging war on on Starbucks for Christmas. I can look past that. It's silly. People are kind of wacky. But this Trump thing, I, I can't overlook. Like, There's just too many red flags. And that was kind of the beginning for me of what led me to start exploring more. Is there anything else that I'm missing? Is there anything else that I, I, I'm missing when it comes to my faith? And I discovered other, um, just other authors and historians, people like Jamar Tisby, who wrote the book, The Color of Compromise. And I'm reading that, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize how how in-depth um, our country's legacy of racism is. It just started giving me new eyes. And then, of course, we had the Black Lives Matter protest because of George, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and then COVID. I think all those three things... <coughs> I kind of called them like, like like the unholy trinity uh, that eventually led me to go, yeah, something is really wrong in this space I'm occupying. And I think we need a new evangelical movement. I, I just made the name on Instagram. I didn't think it would go where it's gone today, but that's kind of what launched me into this work.
1: Yeah. No, that's good. And that's helpful. So, you know, you mentioned that I could use the term, you know, that uh, deconstructed Christian, um, but also that maybe that's not the best term. And I know there's a lot of maybe people watching that. I mean, there's so many conversations right now. I I just finished a a, a session of my doctoral work on deconstruction, de-churching and deconversion, And I recognize that like there's books even coming out that define it certain ways that I go, "Mm, I don't know about that. And so, there's a lot there and there's a lot of ideas that come about when people hear deconstructing or deconverting or dechurching. And so, uh love to kind of, you know, how do you how do you view that? Uh do you see yourself as deconstructed? Um where do you line up kind of with that movement or those ideas?
0: Yeah, so I'm actually reading this book right now. This is uh, Tim and Elisa Childers, uh, Tim Barnett, and Elisa Childers' new book. Mine's um, downstairs. I'm sure, yeah. yeah, I'm sure you're reading it. And you know, I, w- I wanted to read it because I'm, I'm going to do some review work on it. And obviously, there's a lot I disagree with, but I do say, I do think that, that that they get one thing right. Um, so far in the book, I'm not done with it yet. They they talk about how deconstruction is an explosion, and that's really important language. It's actually language that. I, when I met with them when they were prepping for their book two years ago, I gave, I said, this is how I view it. And I'm glad to see it that it made it in the book because people think that, okay, deconstruction means leaving faith or it means doing this or doing that. Somehow you're shifting. And that's kind of the broad idea. You're shifting. Something is in movement. Okay. So you're here with your belief system. Something happens or happens to you. And that makes you rethink, what do I believe about these things? But the 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 end conclusion is a very wide smorgasbord of different conclusions. Some people do go into other religious beliefs, or they become an atheist. But many are really concerned about still exploring the, what I call is the Christian house of thought. So, like the I'm sure you've heard me use this before, Ryan. But I use this analogy of like a house, and a lot of us kind of grew up in this basement that was like, "Hey, this is all there is to being Christian." And when we got above ground, some people were so messed up by that basement, they ran out the front door of Christian thought. But many of us are like, oh, well, now that I'm above ground and this is a massive house, bigger than I ever thought, I kind of want to explore. So yeah. that's how I think about deconstruction. Other language people can use is disentanglement, um, renegotiation of faith. It's a very loose word intentionally, and I know for some people that might drive them kind of crazy because uh, we want singular meanings. But the word, it has a philosophical meaning, it has a cultural meaning, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is helpful. Now, two things come to mind. Um, John Marriott, who's a scholar that writes a lot on deconstruction, deconversion. uh, He Mm -hmm. talks about one kind of common... Cause of a deconstruction is kind of what he calls this over preparation, or where we build our faith like a house of cards, where where everything becomes a central core doctrine. Uh, everything from young earth creationism to uh you know a pre-trib dispensational view of revelation. <laughs> and so pretty much a fundamentalist Christianity becomes Christianity. And therefore, when someone goes, you know, I'm not quite sure about young age. Creationism, or I'm not sure about the rapture, I'm not quite sure about X, then all of a sudden that one car gets pulled out and the whole faith kind of crumbles. Um, yeah. it, 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 I'm curious, is that something that you kind of experienced where <laughs> your faith was, was everything and you started realizing, hey, there's some Christians that disagree on these things. Like not every Christian is a young earth creationist. There's old earth creationists and they're both Christian. And there's The house is bigger than maybe my church made it seem.
0: I think that's a very fair way of putting it overall. One example I use often is when I was 17, I grew up in a very conservative, you know, uh, originally hymns only church. It was reformed uh, um, cessationists. So people who speak in tongues, we don't do that. And I was told that people who do might be demonically influenced. And yeah. this, uh, these, these, uh, these charismatic churches let women preach and that's unbiblical. And then I ended up finding myself in a more charismatic type environment because they had the cool youth group with all the lights and were playing the rock music <laughs> you wanted to play. And I'm like, and, and then when they had a woman preach, I was like, wait a second. You, what do you mean? So I talked to the pastor. I'm, I'm 18. I'm like, hey, I disagree with your theology. He's like, well, we interpret these verses differently. And I was like, wait a second. You're telling me that I can interpret these verses differently with different results? Like, that's allowed? So I think that's a good example of, for a lot of people, that is, is a reality. I mean, even today, right, Ken Ham, a big young, young earth creationist, will say that the young earth creation is a gospel issue. He will he will yeah. use that language. It, it is a a, 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 a first-tier Issue, so it's happening still today.
1: Absolutely, and and I see it. I've been called a heretic, a false preacher, (laughs) a blind guide, controlled by the the club, (laughs) because I think that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Uh, That you know that that's Mm -hmm. literally, or or I hold to like a one saved all like these sort of views makes me some false uh, teacher, blind guide. you know, all that kind of stuff. And so Could I get I, it. Can I yeah. just
0: add to that really quick? Would you mind? Is that okay? Just to kind of flesh yeah, this for out it. for your audience, yeah. because I'm, I'm assuming a lot of them maybe are curious to know how people like me in these other spaces think about it. Once I realized that like a lot of things about the Christian tradition have been debated and argued over and our Bible translations come from somewhere and they're not just not beamed down from, from the sky for a lot of people that is very disorienting. And that's a very fair point, right? Because you're taught like, this is all there is. You get some fresh air. You're like, oh, my gosh, this is not all there is. But for me personally, that just was like, oh, I, it made me so much more curious. Like, oh, like, wait a second. Like yeah. there's there's and then there's also a global church. Like there's an Eastern Orthodox Church and a Catholic Church and they have different books in their Bibles and they don't all agree. And like the Eastern Orthodox and Catholics will, will argue about who's the true church. Like, wait, we're all arguing about everything. Then why am I going to be like, no, guys, but I have the un, the objective, absolute truth of Insert issue here when all of these things, besides maybe a few, but we can that we can get more granular with that. But a lot of these big issues that we were taught were essentials turns out were either very new, like rapture theology, um, or came from somewhere and were debated in are. Yeah. So kind of with that, then I'm just so curious because um,
1: w- if we're saying there's this house of, of of Christianity that has different rooms, and and I would agree to it to. A, certain extent, right? Where you can be a young earth creationist and an old earth creationist. You can be, uh, believe in rapture and you can believe that there is no rapture and you can all fall under the, 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 roof of Christianity. What would you think, um, what would you say are those defining parameters? Like what actually would take someone out of the house versus that is just another room in the house. Like, where is it? Like there is room for interpretation and differences. Cause we're not quite sure versus like, no, you can't disagree there or else you are out of the house. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, it totally does. I mean, I—it's I, a very fair question. I'm not going to give a very compelling answer. Like, I'm just telling your audience now, and I'm okay with that. But ultimately, it's like, in my opinion, we've always been. Every group defines what the house is. Ken Ham's doing that, you know, and I disagree. To him, I'm a—I'm her- a heretic. You're always going to be a heretic to someone, and so I've just kind of <laughs> gotten comfortable being like. Yeah, I'm just not really concerned about it. Like, I am not super concerned about, like, these hard boundaries. Now, personally, do I affirm a physical resurrection? Yes. Do I affirm a trinity? Yes. Virgin birth? Yes. Do I know people who are like, I'm a devoted Christian. I'm actually a scholar of history in the New Testament. I'm not persuaded that the virgin birth is what we think based on the culture and context. Yes. I got to wrestle with that. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Kind of feels weird. Um, But... Okay, and when we die one day, assuming that there's a judgment and God's there, we'll see if God's like, sorry, so and so you had it all. You really loved your neighbor. Well, you know, yeah, you really did the thing. But um, wrong view on virgin birth. So got to pull that lever. That's when I just get like, I don't know. And I'm not it's not really a question I'm even trying to answer at this point. Yeah. So, okay. so, yeah, no,
1: I appreciate that. I think that's helpful. So I guess the last kind of follow up that comes to mind here is so. It doesn't sound like you're saying that you're kind of a relativist or postmodern in the sense that like all views are right. Like, would you agree there is a right and wrong because we're trying to understand reality. But with some issues, it's hard to know which one is right. And therefore, maybe we should have a little bit more grace. Uh, Or are you saying, no, there actually is no right and wrong and you can believe whatever you want on these sort of things. And you're still going into heaven because you're in the house.
0: Yeah, no, totally fair. To be, to be again, just very transparent, I like being honest with people. I'm still kind of navigating even this language that I've discovered two years ago, postmodern and objective. I'm still kind of learning what these terms actually mean. So if I miss that, you can correct me. But what I would say is like my understanding of postmodernism, as I've talked to some of the people who are kind of on, in that world philosophically, is like, it's not that they don't believe that, that objective truth or that truth doesn't exist. It's that realizing that our interpretation can be at times in certain contexts, very subjective, about how we interpret what's happening because of the the limitations of language and how, you know, listen, I mean, if I speaking Spanish and speaking English, you know, this, there are probably certain idioms that just don't translate to English, right? Like there's, there's, there's there's always barriers. So, so what I would say is like, I would affirm if someone asked me, Tim, do you believe that the resurrection physically happened? Yes. Can I objectively prove it beyond a reasonable shadow of a doubt? No. And neither can Sean McDowell, by the way. I asked him, but I'm just saying, like, no. And am, am I going to try and be like, listen? If you don't believe just how I do on these things, you're probably going to burn alive forever. Probably not, because the more I, ex- I I I learn about the Christian tradition, even hell is very debated. Annihilationism, universal reconciliation, eternal conscious torment—these are very subjective things. In the sense of, we're trying to paint with our minds. Metaf- I, I, I'm th- Visual, some metaphysical realities that have been hotly contested for a very long time. Now, is there evidence for some of this stuff? Of course. I'm not saying there's no evidence. I'm just saying I understand how someone can say, hey, uh, you know, I read the data, I read the best available archaeological, whatever, and I'm just not convinced that that, that this thing happened in real life. I'd be like, okay, like, I'm not going to convince you. I, fine, like, to each his own on that. That's kind of how I see yeah.
1: it that's good. Now, if maybe I can, I said that was the last question, but if I can take one more step (laughs) down this road. No Um, questions allowed. OK, so I think it's sometimes it's easy in, in conversations like this where we can bring up issues like you just did of, of hell and that there's eternal conscious torment and annihilationism and other views. Uh, we can talk yeah. about the age of the earth and we can talk about views and revelation. And these are debated issues within the church. And I personally believe uh, you can disagree because these are secondary and tertiary issues where we should be able to, to disagree. And so we sometimes need to make that clear that, hey, Christians can disagree on this. And I've look, I've given a lecture where I'm like, pick one, old earth, young earth, pick one, you're fine. And that makes people upset that I'm not like yeah. this one only. Right. So I get right, that.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: But what about something that is central, right? That, that most would agree on is not a debate issue. So let's just stick, like, let's just say, for example, the gospel itself, that we are sinful and fallen and apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot be saved. Like something in that nature. Like that seems to suggest there's something actually, so there's our terms, objective, subjective, objective, meaning it's true, whether you believe it or not. Like there's, there's something <laughs> wrong with you. And there is only one cure, Jesus. And without the cure of Jesus, then you're not going to be cured. You're not going to be saved. Uh, and therefore, if you believe wrongly, so, you know, the common example if I have cancer and I believe that, you know, ibuprofen cures my cancer and I take a bunch of ibuprofen, I'm not going to be healed and I'm going to die of my cancer. Like I have to have the right cure for the problem that is wrong with me. And that is not something I can determine myself. And, um, and so there's an, an attitude then is if, if someone is believing wrongly, If someone has cancer, I'm a doctor that has chemotherapy and I can heal them, but they go, no, this Tylenol works. Do I just go, yay, go for it. Take your Tylenol and wish for the best. Or do I try my best to persuade them that what they think is an answer is not actually going to save them. So this, my, I, I'm, I'm giving a background story, but I, the, the question is, on something core to Christianity like the gospel, can we at least say there's something objectively wrong with us and there is only one cure, and therefore, if someone gets that wrong, I shouldn't just say, well, I'll die one day and find out. We should try to persuade and convince.
0: Uh, wow, yeah. Um. Yes, uh, okay, so um. Pin... Pin in 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 this conversation, me asking you a question about this. I yeah. I, I don't think that the Tylenol analogy is a good one for this because we're talking about metaphysical unknowns versus like scientific methods that we can test and do placebo effects and actually verify this is it. Um, just I just want I want to point that out there. Um. So here's the thing. I mean, I, and, and and I wanted to clarify what I'm going to say I was asking when I was deeply formed by my conservative evangelical world. Deeply formed. This is not a liberal deconstruction question. I was asking this when I was 18. What exactly is the gospel? Because I hear what you just say, but I also know what Paul Washer says. I know what Shane Claiborne says. I know that the Eastern Orthodox Church is a very different take. I, I know that, that, that there are several different atonement theories about, about what the cross signifies. And many, several of them are not about the wrath of God being poured out or God paying the penalty for my sin. There's right. ransom theory, et cetera. So, you know, I just want to point out, like, I, I, I you tell me, like, is that statement what you just said, right, uh, what the gospel is? Is that an objective reality that was held by all Christians for all time? And if someone didn't hold it, they're in hell right now?
1: Well, okay, so a few different thoughts here. Does that make I don't, sense though? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Here's how I would say it is, is you say is it an objective reality that all Christians have held at all times. And that's not what makes something objective, right? Something is objective independent of what we think or believe about it. Right. So, for example, when the whole world believed that uh, the the Earth was the center of the solar system, the whole world was wrong uh, because that was objectively false. The sun was the center. Uh, When we switched and Galileo came along and said, "No, heliocentrism is true, not geocentrism." The sun and the Earth did not switch locations. Right. So, uh, when when something is objectively true, we're talking about how reality actually is, and that is independent of how many people believed it. Right. Uh,
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Okay. So then.
1: Yeah. So then, with that though, you you bring up um, different views of uh, of um, now I just blinked on the word, but of, of what did Jesus on the cross do? Yeah, atonement, atonement theories. Theory. There we go. Thank you. And I interviewed William and Craig on atonement theories, oh, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of parse through all of these different things with his book on the atonement, and I think there are different things of exactly how does. Jesus' death on the cross atone, what does it do or how, how does it get played out? And yes, there is, is it, is it substitutionary atonement? Is it ransom theory? Is it Christus-Victor theory? And there's different ideas. But where all of them do agree is this idea that Jesus' death on the cross did something, that that without the death on the cross, we would not be saved. Now how exactly did his death on the cross save us? There's gonna be disagreement, but they're all going to agree on that core that his death on the cross was necessary for salvation. And so I don't think that if you get an atonement theory wrong, that if you believe in Christus Victor and it's actually penal substitution or vice versa, that you're gonna burn in hell. I think that's where we have to recognize there's a difference between a core doctrine, where if I believe Bob down the street is gonna save me, he's not. Now, if I believe Jesus Uh saves and he does, then I think I can be saved, even if I may have a false view or an incorrect view on exactly how he saves. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say save, you mean not going to hell and going to heaven. Ultimately, it's about an afterlife experience. Is, is, Is that the key? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So what I would say is I would agree with you completely that Jesus' death on the cross did something. I'm personally very attracted to healing atonement. I interviewed a guy named Maga Nakasawa years ago, and like his uh that tradition of just like the idea that that sin is a virus that is you know destroying the good world, the good world that God created both humanity and physical creation and that Christ's atonement or Christ's death brought about the ability to to, to be healed i think that's really beautiful so yes absolutely i would definitely though argue about this this and this is, I think, is a very Protestant thing of like the biggest focus being so we don't burn in hell one day when we die. I mean, this is NT Wright surprised by hope. This is the Bible project. Like they talk about this deeply that like the gospel authors, or sorry, um, let me rephrase the the New Testament authors. Don't seem, I mean, they're definitely concern about, you know, judgment and et cetera. But the uh, the notion that if you don't believe this atonement theory, whatever it is, this general idea that God died for you, you're going to burn to hell one day. I mean, Paul never mentions it. That's some of the earliest script, manuscripts that we have, as far as we know. So I think that there's something deeper going on that's more about what we do here and now than the afterlife, frankly. That's just how I see it. And I think that there's good Christian support for it, even if other parts would disagree with me on that.
1: Yeah. So you, you mentioned Paul. I mean, because then you could look at Jesus, right? Jesus speaks about hell more than any other New Testament writer and is constantly calling oh, mm-hmm. people to repentance. John the Baptist called people yeah. to, to repentance and so mm-hmm. I mean one could argue if, if Jesus so clearly lays out this idea of eternal life, eternal destruction you know being sent away forever like then then Paul is like coming into the stage and writing to these churches that already have this foundation from Jesus and then he is maybe addressing some other issues and he's like hey don't sleep with your dad's wife and like there's some <laughs> there's issues like that that Paul is coming along and trying to encourage people. And I think that's why it's important maybe to, to understand the whole scope of scripture and what we see from the very beginning uh, rather than this one kind of aspect. And, and But I think what you draw out is, is such a good point is that Christians often have taken different approaches and how we address the culture. And, and Richard Niebuhr talks about this in his Christ and Culture book where um, there are Christians that have this like Christ against culture, right? This would be like a uh, uh, Amish style, like culture is evil. Stay away. Let's create our own little views. And then Niebuhr calls like what he says, like the Christ above culture, like Christ, Jesus is up there and we're just waiting for heaven. And like, we just ignore what's going on here. Ultimately, Niebuhr argues that the, the biblical view would be a Christ transformer of culture, that that the gospel applies to the here and now. God, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Like it's it's not an either or. But it's a it's a transformative thing that happens in the here and now. And so if, if we as Christians are going to ignore this cultural moment, then we're getting then we're missing something.
0: Yeah. I Yeah. I would just say that and we can move on from this, but I would disagree with you about the clarity of Jesus on hell. You know, the words Gehenna, it's been debated. There's people like Keith Giles and David Bentley Hart, for example, one of the greatest Eastern Orthodox minds of of, of our lifetime, you know, they they, they they have very different perspectives on those same passages. So that's all I'm trying to say is like, I understand that. I'm not saying it's not, a, what I'm not saying, Ryan, is that you can't have that view that Jesus talks about hell a lot. And this is what hell is. I, I totally get it. I understand that people can get there. But all I'm saying is that, well, even that's been debated. And so how we think about salvation should be very, we should be, we should be very careful before we just assume that, oh, universally the whole point of the gospel is saving souls from the depths of hell. That's not all that is to it either here and now or historically. So that's all I'm saying, personally.
1: No, and I I think that's a really helpful, um, I think that's a helpful point Um, because I think it frames the conversation. Now I always think in analogies and and it's kind of like where I push back is this idea of like, yes, things have been debated. So to act like this has never been a debate and Christians throughout all of church history have always 100% agreed on this issue would be false. But I think like, then the question becomes, when can we confidently state a position because that's what we are convinced of, even though there has been a debate, right? So I think of like a jury trial where evidence Mm -hmm. is presented and just because there's a defense attorney arguing that he's innocent and a prosecuting attorney arguing that person is guilty and just because there's a debate and an argument and evidence on both sides, does that mean the jury can't come to the conclusion, no, he is clearly guilty. Beyond a reasonable doubt, this person is guilty, we're gonna send him off to jail. And you say, well, but it's debated. They, they had this week long trial that debated. It's like, yeah, there was a debate. And I think one side clearly won the debate. And so I am convinced of that. When, <laughs> when can we kind of use that more, that sort of more confident language, even though there has been a debate?
0: Well, I think because we're talking about theology and metaphysics and realities that, that 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 supersede our physical reality, right? I mean, even the idea of hell, how we think about it, like, where exactly is it? Are we embodied? Are we not? I mean, I've even thought about personally, and listen, I affirm a physical resurrection. Let me just say that. But like, yeah. how do cremated people come back to life? Because Paul talks about the the rise of the dead. Like, do they just like magically assemble? I mean, these are real <laughs> questions, right? Because we're talking about right. the embodied world and we're embodied people. So um, what I would say is my answer, and I think this actually does tie back to one of the frustrations I heard from people who were deconstructing was that their church traditions were never really fully honest about about, about the plethora of perspectives, even if they yeah. favored one over the other. It's one thing for, I don't know, we'll just say Calvinist A, like, you know, the, the typical like hardline Paul Washer type to be like, hey, listen, I think the scripture is super clear, predestination, you know, total depravity, limited atonement. But just so we're all aware, I recognize that in the grand scheme of Christian thought, not everyone sees it that way. And even though we disagree strongly, they're still Christian. Instead, what a lot of us got was if you don't believe the rapture, you're not a real Christian. If you don't believe the Bible is inerrant the way that we define it, you're not a real Christian. If you, you know, it's all these, it's all these like boundary keeping things. So I think for a lot of us for the first time, have have given ourselves permission to not land emphatically on a new theological paradigm that we think is like real for all time, for all people, because we're still navigating how big this house is. And so a lot of people are just like, hey, I'm not saying this objective thing doesn't exist. I'm not even saying that eternal conscious torment doesn't exist. I'm just not sure yet if I believe that's where I'm going to land because there's other ways of viewing this stuff. That's kind yeah. of the difference for me. Yeah. And, and, and
1: I would, I fully agree there. Um, and that's where a lot of, in my speaking events and I go places like last night, I was asked uh, a question. Um, I did, I was doing a Q and a last night and I was asked the question, does God know my future? Did he plan out my future? And I right. said, here are five Christian views. Here's open theism. Here's Arminianism. Yeah. Here's Molinism. Yeah. Here's a compatibilism. And here is exhaustive divine determinism. You know, I am here's proud how- of you Ryan for bringing <laughs>
0: open theism. Good job. I'm proud of you for that. That's great. <laughs> I love um, that that's
1: so great. I said, here's how Christians have approached this question, and here are some positives and negatives of both, and, and that's often what I do and like I said, i I go to places and I'm like here like i'm a I'm a very committed um convinced old earth creationist. I'm not a six day literal young earth creationist, but when I go places, I'm like, here's young, here's old, pick one. Um, Christians disagree here. And again, like I said before, that kind of gets me in trouble. But so I agree with like, we, we, when we construct this house again, I like, I've always heard the house of cards. When we construct this house of cards, you have to believe rapture, young earth creation creation, you have Calvinists and all this kind of stuff. And if you don't believe that you're not a Christian, I think that does a disservice because, okay, so I I just got the question the other day texted in, um, which was, if I have to believe that the Bible is an authority, then do I have to be a young earth creationist? Because it's, well, science says old, the Bible says young. And so either the Bible is my authority and I'm a young or the science is my authority. And I believe in everything is old. And, and when we've constructed that, I think that I mean, studies show that leads a lot of students away from the faith because then they're convinced by their Ph.D. professors who have studied this and researched it. Then a Sunday school teacher who taught everything was made in six days and then they go, okay, well, then my Christianity falls apart because clearly science wins here. Uh, But it's us giving them, I think, uh, this incorrect um, position.
0: Well, and to your point, it's compatible. John Walton's work on on Genesis is great. He's a very, you know, pretty conservative dude theologically, but he has written great texts on Genesis. He's one of the leading authorities explaining how, well, the context of Genesis 1 and 2 is not a science book. Like, Like, that's not what the authors are talking about, you know? So I think for a lot of us, we're realizing, like, we don't have to make everything a, a war, you know. Is it science or is it the Bible? Like, they're they're you know they're, they well I don't want to say that person's name because he was an abuser, but there was someone who used to be an apologist who would say, right that 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 science tells us the the um the the what, and then um theology tells us the why. And I'm like, that's right. great, like they're compatible in that way because science yeah. is the understanding of the physical natural world, what we can learn about it. It doesn't have to be at odds with each other, but too often for a lot of us, we you know, grew up in like this place where it was like, no, the Bible is our science book. It's our health book in some, in some places. Right. Um, and it's like, well, I don't think the Bible is trying to be that just like how I would never use the Bible for a recipe book. Like I'm not going to make, um, I'm not going to make manna as based on what I see in the Bible. It's just not trying to do that. There's a bigger issue. There's a bigger story happening. Same thing for me. You could
1: build an ark like Ken Ham did.
0: I could do that. I, I could take <laughs> my faith incredibly seriously and build an arc. So.
1: <laughs> um, okay. So switching a, a little bit, you, you mentioned in your bio on your website, um, yeah. kind of along with this, you said you you, you were pursuing deeper questions. Um, and it says, uh, let's see, while studying and questioning caused him to no longer be welcomed in his church community. Um, okay. And so I'm just kind of curious about that. Like, was it just, because I hear that a lot of like, I had an atheist reach out recently, which kind of was the comment of like, Christians always say, we're open to your questions. And then he started asking questions and the church just like shot him down. Like, we don't ask that. Stop. You know, just have faith sort of thing. I'm just kind of curious what your experience was, is as you started studying and asking questions, what was the kind of unwelcomeness of those questions within your church community?
0: So, um, I will say this, the church I was a part of before everything kind of fell apart was a great church. No one was abusive. I wasn't, I wasn't hurt any, like in the sense of I was abused as a volunteer or something. I loved it there. And I missed a lot of those people still. Um, it, it's not a, it wasn't for me about the questions. My church was fine with asking questions. It was when I started coming to different answers and talking about them online under the moniker of TNE, even though I, I, my church and, and, and my, my vault, my, my account at the time were totally separate. I never talked about what I did. Um, they were concerned about the direction I was heading in with some of my, you know, perspectives on LGBTQ plus inclusion, um, et cetera, you know? Um, and so eventually they, they kind of gave me an ultimatum to either, either stop being a volunteer drummer on their team for that, that I, that I was on for the past six years or stop doing the work I was doing online. And at that point I knew I just, I, I had to shake hands and say, you know, I, I got to move on. So that was kind of what happened there.
1: Okay. Sounds good. Now yeah. uh, that kind of leads into then the 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 next part of what I wanted to discuss is, uh, we, okay. So we've tried to kind of we've d- discussed this idea of how do we land theologically in different views. Now, now how do Christians apply this? To culture, how do we apply it politically? Because I know on your channel you do a ton on on um, on Christian nationalism and against that, and uh, we've talked about this. I studied that last year for my doctoral research, um, and I'm with you there. Christian nationalism, you know, and again, it's defined in a lot of different ways. But um, the way that you know, we can talk about that if we want. But but how how can we then take beliefs and convictions we have, and then live those out in the public sphere uh, in a well, maybe I'll just stop there. How do we live that out versus I guess what I'm trying to ask is um, and not be considered forcing my view on others or Christian nationalists, because I have a certain view, let's say, on marriage and sexuality. I think it should be part of the law. Uh, abortion, same way. I think that should be in law. And therefore, I am often labeled a Christian nationalist. Um, so how, mm. how should we then live out the convictions that we have or do we need to kind of keep them locked up and say, you do you? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I fully acknowledge this is a very complicated question. We all have beliefs, we all have religious viewpoints, even atheists, right, have have some kind of worldview that shapes how they vote for their policies based on whatever it is the criteria is. So what I'm not advocating for is that Christians, broadly speaking, uh, should not be allowed to vote or something crazy like that. Like vote for who you want. Um, I and I also want to say there's a massive distinction between Christian nationalism and conservative politics or theology. So there are a lot of people who I know who I respect who are much more conservative than I am on all these issues, but they're not Christian nationalists because of the approach that they have, et cetera. You know, I, I think that one of the questions I ask myself is, is it's kind of a combination and I don't want to speak as a gatekeeper here. I'm not telling you that people have to see it my way, but in a pluralistic society, where there is a constitution that guarantees religious freedom for all, not just for for Christians, but for all. Um, obviously, we're going to have moments where certain religious traditions might, you know, butt up against someone else's rights. And Andrew Seidel, a constitutional lawyer, says that you know your rights begin uh, or your rights end where my face begins, right? The idea of like, hey, like no one's telling you that you have to um, get married to someone of the same sex or even perform a wedding at your church of the same sex, but other people still have the right. To do that in this country, because then that's your fist in their face. And so, of course, this uh, there's other topics we can talk about now, right? Like, how about slavery? I, I totally get how this is not the most perfect analogy, but in our cultural moment, in particular around queer rights, I think it's really important that we recognize that people have a right to do things and live how... How, live in ways that we or you or whoever might not agree with, and that happens all the time. Strip clubs are a thing. There are places people can go to get drunk. You know, weed is legalized in New Jersey. These are all things that some people might have really strong um, convictions against, or say they're unbiblical or they're not good for a society, but they're still allowed because we have to make room for other people who don't see the world like us.
1: Right. Yeah. And I. And I. And this is where I think it's it's helpful. Um, because I actually, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, I, I think the fact that we live in uh, a religiously pluralistic society is good. I think I think um, a foundation of what I stand on uh, is freedom of thought and freedom of conscience and ultimately freedom of religion. And and if I want the freedom to practice and believe what I want to practice and believe, then other people should have the freedom to practice and believe what they want to practice and believe. And so if I start to control someone else's thoughts and what they their beliefs are and their practices, um, then I think that erodes the foundation on which I stand. Um and totally. and and that I that I stand on to be able to pray and do the things that I want to do. 100%. The issue though becomes though is that there is a line that's drawn, right? So in society, uh for marriage for example, there are marriages that society does not allow. And so um mm-hmm. that's where then there gets to be this interesting question is uh, on what standard then can we say no to one thing um Versus saying, well, just because everyone can have their own beliefs doesn't mean everyone can live out those equally. There are times where we draw a line.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in the case of of um, LGBT plus marriage in particular, um, I can't think of a good reason why that wouldn't be allowed. And and I want to be clear. It's not for me. It's not about a religious thing. It's about just a a rights thing. If you're with a partner for 35 years and they're in the hospital, you should be able to have the right to make medical decisions for them like a spouse would have or tax breaks, etc. Things like that. So I just don't. My question is like, well, you tell me what the danger is to you or to me if my friend down the street who's gay gets married to his partner of 30 years and gets the same access to legal rights that I have, that's not taking away from anyone else's marriage. That's not taking away from anyone else. That's simply expanding a very common American right when it comes to how we think about marriage to a different type of couple that wouldn't fit the heteronormative view. Yeah.
1: And this is where we've kind of gone back in our 60-second voice memos. And, and <laughs> yeah. I have not, I think, had a good job of, of, of fleshing this out. Yeah, if you saw our names, Instagram names, DMs. Yeah. Um, Jesus. So, so here's here's what I think is is a starting how I start with this conversation and I'm I'm, I'm happy for this opportunity to, to be able to kind of flesh this out a little bit um, the question I often start with is why is the government even involved in marriage to begin with? why does the government recognize why why have they recognized in the past man woman marriage and why do they give a tax break? Why do they give these sort of benefits to a man- woman marriage when they don't to any other, type of relationship or when they didn't to any other type of relationship. Like, so for example, uh, if it's my golf buddy, uh, and, and, he goes to the hospital, I'm like, well, he's my golf buddy. I need to get in. Or he's my golf buddy. Can I get a tax break? They're going to say, well, no. And I say, but I, but I love him a lot. And it's like, I, that's cool, but that's not why we recognize it. Right. And so I don't know if you have an answer for that. Uh, but, but the question is why historically has our country, uh, given Benefits to this type of relationship where all other types of relationships have not had the same sort of benefits given to it.
0: Yeah, I truly don't know the reason to that. And to me, it doesn't really matter because we're here now. Like, regardless right. of what the motivation was, like, this is the moment that we find ourselves in. Does that, does that, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and so I think, again, so, so in my mind, I think of it like this is... um I go to Chipotle a lot and Chipotle has a rewards program, right? Where you buy enough burritos, you get yourself a free burrito, right? And the question is, well, why are they giving out these benefits? And in my mind, it's the, the reason is, well, because they're trying to reward behavior that benefits them. Right that by by me going and buying a bunch of burritos, I'm benefiting Chipotle, and therefore they're going to reward that behavior to encourage me to keep buying burritos. Now, if you, for example, never go to Chipotle, you don't even like Chipotle, and you walk into Chipotle and you say, "Well, hey, Ryan's getting free burritos all the time. Can I have a free burrito?" Uh, and they, wh- like, th- what are they going to say? They're going to say, "Well, no, we don't just give out free burritos." And you're like, "But he gets them." And they, and they're uh-huh. going to say, "Well, because what Ryan is doing is a benefit to us. He's buying food. If you want to start buying a bunch of food that benefits us, then we'll give you this sort of kick." back, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I think about it is traditional marriage, man, woman, marriage has certain benefits to society that other types of relationships don't have like friends or golf partners, um, or even a, a dating relationship. And so there's a certain, uh, some people, you know, use a blanket term called, you know, perpetuates and stabilizes society that, uh, marriage historically produces children. Government needs children. That's the citizens. If we're not having children, our society will die off as well as you can look at sociological studies that show that marriage civilizes men. It kind of controls men a little bit better. Uh, It forces them to get a job and do these sort of things. Uh, It's good for women. And so there's been a sociological understanding that traditional man-woman marriage is a benefit to society. It's good for society. And therefore, the government has provided this sort of incentive for that specific type of relationship that has a unique benefit that other types of relationships don't have. And it's not saying that the relationship that I have with my brother is evil and bad and I need to be punished. It's not. But my friendship, my, my tennis partner, my golf partner, me and my students, it doesn't have that same sort of benefit. And so they're not promoting it in the sense that they are promoting others. Does that make sense?
0: I, it does, I guess, to a degree. Um, if the government was, hey... For anyone who can have babies, we want to incentivize you. So here's like a thousand dollar check. This, this is our, this is our tax break for all marriages. I guess that's that's one thing, but that's just not where we're at. Like the, the government says, when you get married underneath a religious identity or 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 apply for one of our marriage licenses, you get these tax breaks and benefits as a couple, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So people who are living long term monogamous lives together, in this example, um, I don't know why we w- we, w- we would withhold that same thing because to your point, like. Long-term romantic relationships can also in, in, that are queer can also, you know, benefit to that person's health and maybe uh, like I think you made the analogy or the example of they kind of bring men in a little bit and you know make them a little more whatever that could happen in a gay marriage. I just don't understand like why we would withhold that, especially given how many many heterosexual marriages either end in divorce um, or uh, don't have kids, and we have, we don't think twice about well they're still a married couple so. I'm just saying if you're going to expand it, I think that queer people have should have the same access to those legal rights that their heterosexual neighbors do.
1: Oh, I think that's a really good point is if you're going to expand it, then then it should be maybe expanded to this. But then the question is, where does that expansion stop? Right. The moment the moment we recognize uh, we are going to expand the definition of marriage to include other things. Right. I'm sure you're aware that there are people advocating culturally uh, for polygamy uh, and for um, polyamory group marriage. And the question is, the moment we take a word that has a specific definition and expand it to include others, then the question becomes, where does that expansion stop? Uh, Where do we then draw the line and what is that line being based on? So uh, if I can put it this way, um, again, I keep saying I like analogies, I think like this. So if we say, um, if you go to, if you're a senior citizen and you go to McDonald's, you can get a senior citizen coffee, right? That word senior citizen has a very specific definition. And so if I'm a senior citizen, I get the coffee. If I'm not, I don't, right? The moment McDonald's says, hey, we're going to expand the definition of a senior citizen and a senior citizen is any adult, um, then the question is, now, if I walk in and say, I would like my senior citizen coffee, uh, they can't say no to me. Right. Because they've already kind of showed, well, this definition is is expandable. The question is now, why exclude me? Uh, what, what reason could they give to say, Ryan, I'm sorry, you don't get a coffee. That is a fair discrimination. And, and well, I think yeah, that leads to unjust yeah, discrimination. Sorry. sorry, go for it.
0: I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, No, you're good. I mean, two things, to be fair, like the senior citizen's age does shift over time. I think the government just raised it recently as far as as the age of retirement goes. They raised it by two years, et cetera. So things do shift, to be clear. Um, But um, I guess what I'm trying to say, and I I don't mean to, to not take your questions seriously. That's not my intent. Yeah. I just don't really care if my poly neighbors have the same access to legal rights that I have. Like, I I think that's great. Good for them. Like, I, I'm not concerned about it. It's not taking away from my family with my kids. It's not taking away someone else's marriage. It's not taking money out of their pocket. I'm fine with that. Like, it, it, and literally, that's such a small minority of the population anyway. It's probably like under 1%. If, if we want to say, hey, people who are in committed relationships can get married to more than one person and they can enjoy the same, again, a power of attorney rights and legal rights, Literally for me, fine. I, I'm just, the only reason why that's an issue is because we think that that, or people think that sex outside of a, a hetero, heterosexual. Um, monogamous marriage is sinful and that usually and, I, and this is not your argument I know that you, you argue very differently so I'm not putting this on you but in the common out al- in the common understanding culturally that's only happening because Christians have this super strict view of sexuality that they think everyone else must subscribe to or we're going to lose the country or like something bad's going to happen and I'm just like I don't think that's the case at all and I just do not care if my poly friends get, get access to the same rights that I have I'm not concerned about it I don't think yeah. twice about it
1: so then I guess, I guess where my question would be then is where then would you draw that? Is there a line on who?
0: Consenting adults, consenting, long-term romantic adults that want to spend the rest of their life with each other. It's kind of the idea behind marriage, right? Like so, we're in this together, et cetera.
1: So as far as consenting adults, do you put a number on that?
0: Well, the age of adult is 18, right? In America. No, no, no.
1: Sorry. Not the age, but but how many adults?
0: Oh well, I mean, I, I guess we can have that conversation, right? We don't want to pull like a like a Solomon situation here and have like a hundred people that we're married to or something like that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about that, but again, like these are very rare exceptions, anyway. I mean, the most I, I don't know what that number would be to be to, to be honest with you, but that's like a real rarity, you know that that would be like I have 40 long term partners, I want to marry all of them. You're looking at what, like maybe five people in the U.S. Okay, yeah. So, so, but I'm, I'm I, so yeah, there, there's two
1: reasons. No, I think that's really good. I, I, there's two reasons why that comes to mind for me. Number yeah, one is, me. is something like polygamy is something currently being practiced in the United States and is considered illegal. Right. So it may be a very small yeah. group of people, but there are people that want this to be legal. And currently our government is saying no. Now, Mm -hmm. if we are saying marriage is for any consenting adults that love each other, then Mm -hmm. I don't think that we can justly discriminate against them. I think that's unjust discrimination, right? It's just like saying, uh, this coffee is for anyone. If I walk in the restaurant and say, I'd like a coffee, and they say no— what reason can they give me that would be a justified reason to withhold giving me that coffee? And I don't think there's any reason, right? Well, the moment they say this is for anybody. And so there are some people there that do want polygamous relationships. Um, And so the question is, if we want to be just in our discrimination, then I think that we should have to allow that. But the second thing I think, and the bigger reason why I ask this is, I'm often accused of, (laughs) of being unjust, hateful, discriminating, anti-whatever person because I draw some lines on who I think should and should not be able to get married. And my Mm -hmm. common response when I teach this to students is everyone draws lines, Mm -hmm. right? So everyone will say, you need consent, right? I think Mm -hmm. that's almost universal, like there needs to be consent. The question is, well, why consent? Well, you just, you have to have that. Okay. So we've all drawn one line. It needs to be consenting. And then I often ask a student, Oh, I, I, I kind of work through this with my students and I say, okay, what if there's a 40 year old man that consents with a 10 year old girl? Are you good with that? And they'll say, well, no, right. you have to be old enough. Okay. So now there's an age requirement. That's a second line. And I say, okay, so if there's a 25 year old man, a 20 year old girl, they're both old enough, but they're brother and sister, are you okay with that? And almost everyone will say, well, no, that's incest. That's wrong. Okay. So there's a third right. line. You can't be related. And I say, okay, so as long as you're not related. One man and four women. Well, no, that's polygamy. It can only be two. Okay. That's another line. So I often will say to my students, as me as a Christian, I only culturally draw one more line than almost everyone else. Mm -hmm. And that is, it needs to be the opposite sex. And I'm labeled as this intolerant, hateful person. How dare you limit people when all of us limit with lines the fundamental question then becomes, well, why have you drawn the lines that you've drawn? Is it well, just based yeah. on your personal preference? And I just think that's icky and gross and therefore, no, I think we can all agree that's wrong. Or is it because of some, as I, how I argue, a natural law argument based on reality that is not dependent on what I think, but based on what I think I discovered. So that, that's uh-huh. where I have a hard time is, is the mo- is we all draw those lines. Why am I labeled as such a horrible person when you also have a line, Tim, on certain people that should not be able to mm. get married?
0: Yeah, well, I think, and
1: you, you don't uh, label me that way. I'm not saying to yeah, everyone right, that that's right, what you do, right, but I right. get that online.
0: So I have two thoughts on this. Number one, just to, I guess, respond. You know, the one line, the one extra line you're drawing, so to speak. It's a pretty big line. You know, it's like saying uh, we give coffee to everyone. We all agree on this line, except if you're a woman. It's like, well, that's a pretty one. That's even though it's only one line. It's a pretty big line to make. But I, I understand what you're saying. Your your point is that when you advocate for these things, you get labeled something automatically. And honestly, the reason why I think whether you'll you know want to acknowledge it or not, is that because the cultural networking that you're a part of, like this evangelical thing, and you deal in the apologetics world, is one of the loudest voices that are fighting tooth and nail to minimize all queer rights across the country. There's been a record level of anti-trans legislation, over 500 bills last year alone, most of them funded by things like the ADF. These are big Christian organizations fighting for quote-unquote biblical values. So while you might not subscribe to that argument, you're going to get lumped in because you're identifying as someone in that space, and you would say, yes, I think that you know we shouldn't have uh, queer marriage. So the other thing I'll, I'll say too is that, and I know you and I have discussed this, and I'm not putting this on you directly, so don't mis- misunderstand, but we have to acknowledge not just the hey we have this opinion we love you but we, we're gonna we disagree here on the politics but we've had decades of evangelicals um Jerry Falwell and many others who have done a lot of like direct attacks on queer people Jerry Falwell blames 9/11 on the queers and the the feminists um the AIDS crisis uh, so many Christians were just absolutely brutal to gay men so it's like we have to acknowledge that that, that, that for the queer community there is a history there that's not lost on them and then yeah. you think about, some of these people who are in power, they hold positions of authority, right? I mean, I'm sure you're aware of the tragic death of Next Benedict, the non-binary student in Oklahoma. Um, um, we don't know all the details yet, but they were beat up in a, in a bathroom and they went home after the hospital and passed away the next day. And then Senator Tom Cotton, who's saying as a, as a religious person, we don't want that filth here. You're like, well, and, and then he and then he clarifies as a Christian. It's like, well, I mean, can you blame people for for thinking automatically that if you're against their right to to have access to marriage, you're automatically somewhere in that world because you're claiming so many of the same identity markers? So I'm not saying that that's even a fair correlation, but I certainly understand how people who have experienced so much marginalization in marginalization and hate directed towards them, and hearing Christians publicly say this stuff, and no other Christians are like, no, that's wrong, that's evil. We have to ha- have it find a better way. They go well I guess this is how Christians are you know so I, I think that that I'm, I know I'm zooming out there but I think that that's one of the big reasons
1: yeah no and I think that's a great zoom because I am I'm more than happy and, and I do. Right. I, I, let, me, let me back up and say it this way: I've talked to many queer individuals who have shared stories of experiences they've had at the church, or even you know, last year my my audience is aware of this. Last year my focused research was on transgenderism, and and I came across a lot of stories, both personal conversations I had with individuals as well as things I read online, of, of parents, teachers, and and pastors responding horribly to the to transgender individuals, to where I said to their face, I am so sorry, right? That should not have happened. And so to wipe that away and ignore that, um, I, I think would be problematic. Um, where, where, I, where I think that there's a way, and this is where we have to, I think when we live in a soundbite culture, it's hard. I I taught, I mean, I've taught at conferences or camps or whatever. I've had many queer students in the audience. And one specifically told me, after I taught on what I think and how I define a biblical view of sexuality, and I taught that sex is between one man and one woman inside the context of marriage and any type of sex outside of that, I believe is sin. And that's what I think scripture teaches. and And I taught all this. But the way in which I taught it and presented it, a queer student said, if more Christians taught it like this, it would bring healing between the two communities rather than division. And Mm so where where I think is, is often not heard. And this is where I'm trying to get my foot in the door with my studies and the way I'm trying to come alongside people at conferences and churches is I think there's a way in which we've taken biblical ideas on sexuality and weaponized them. And, and, and I mean, the story I share many many times is when I said I was studying gender um, I had a elementary school teacher tell me um, that's an easy topic. Just look between your legs. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's like, wow, that's terrible. I, I've had mm-hmm. students tell me their mom came and said, do you think God made a mistake? God doesn't make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are not helpful responses, uh, but I don't yeah. think, and I, I'm not saying you're advocating this, but I don't think the, 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 the solution then is to swing all the way to the other side and say, therefore it's not wrong or it's not sinner, or It's not these sort of things. Um, I think that there's, we just have to recognize that, what we say matters, but also how we say it matters. Um, And and there's often been really poor approaches taken when discussing these issues. And we can look at examples in the evangelical world, the horrible, as well as I've heard many examples from queer individuals who grew up in non-religious homes and when they came out as queer, their non-religious parents treated them horrible. So Mm -hmm. I think we can't just look at the examples and say, here's a a non-religious person that treated their queer student horribly, therefore, X. We have to say, look, that it shouldn't happen at the same time. How do we approach this theologically and biblically, culturally? I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, I think this is where we diverge because we, I definitely, we as an organization are fully affirming, fully inclusive. Don't think it's sinful in any way, shape or form to be queer or trans or anything like that. Like we fully affirm all of that. Um, and so, so we definitely disagree on that. I think on a, on a quote unquote biblical level, so to speak. And I, you know, if you want um, maybe a, um, if you want, if you want reading that might, um, you know, be in the opposite perspective, Jenner, Dr. Jennifer Bird, a great New Testament scholar, just wrote a book, actually I have it right here, called Marriage in the Bible, What Do the Texts Say? It's just a very hard look at the Bible in marriage. But so I want to just make that clear to the audience that, you know, yes, no, we definitely disagree on that. I think what I would say, and I, I know, again, we're going to disagree here too. So my, my goal isn't to push you too hard, but I, I would say that one of my biggest disagreements with you, because I, I do think that you're a good faith person, that we've had many good conversations, is that. I just don't know how many more examples we have to present or, or, or how many more people we have to show to communicate to folks like you who are kind of in this role, but more moderate that, 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 that the toxin is coming from, from the predominantly white evangelical world. Like it just is. Charlie Kirk and Turning Point USA, major fifty million a dollar year organization, all about attacking trans people. Matt Walsh and his audience, which are mostly white evangelicals. I mean, there's there's so many things happening behind the scenes and publicly that are said in the name of God. Michael Knowles, um, you know, who's a Catholic, we have to eradicate transgenderism, and people applaud that. So when trans people see that, of course they're scared. If you saw if you saw a, um, a massive organization with tens of millions of followers that was Islamic. And they were saying, Christianity should be eradicated. You would be like, oh, these people are coming after me. And then they're like, well, no, I don't mean Christians, just Christianity. You're like, well, there's no difference for me. I am a Christian. I'm part of Christianity. So once you flip the script to a different group attacking you, I think it gets a lot more clear of how other people perceive and see these these comments that are said over and over and over again. And also, I think that we have to recognize that, well, yes, any people group, any religious group certainly can do a lot of harm. And this goes for any, it can go for Hinduism or Islam. In America, we have a white evangelical nationalist problem. We don't have a radical Hindu problem. That Now, there's issues in India with that. That's not our cultural context. Our context is that we have people who are claiming to be this I stand on biblical values. I have a biblical worldview. I believe the Bible is clear on on this, and therefore we're going to use we're going to use that as a springboard to weaponize all of our rhetoric towards the dehumanization of a particular people group. Unfortunately, this is just the same. Framework that we've seen in the past in America with white evangelicalism. I'm thinking of uh, Ru- Russell Hawkins' book, "The Bible Told Them So," etc. Um, that 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 uh, a warped and weaponized theology to target Black people. I mean, there's there, or women during the the women's suffrage movement. So this is not uncommon in the historical context. There's just a new target, which right now is the queer community, despite. And I'm, I'm not ranting at you, Ryan, so please hear me out on that. I'm not yelling. I just want to get this... I, I, I'm just trying to paint the picture for you. Yeah. Despite your people being still very much a minority of people, okay? Yes, they're growing in Gen Z, but they're still very much a minority. I, in my mind... And like, we have such bigger issues that we could be, that we're trying to fry, like affordable health care in the country, fair wages, the predatory loan industry, which all, by the way, you can pull very clear biblical distinctions in, Bi- in Bible verses to prove that uh, this is a biblical mandate. So to me, I'm like, you know, if you want to attack a people group who are just trying to do what they want to do, you can do that. But I don't think it's the way of Jesus. Ultimately, I don't think it's loving our neighbor. Well, I don't think it's liberating the oppressed. Well, I don't think it's clothing the sick well or, or clothing the naked, et cetera. So that, that's just kind of how I see it.
1: No, I no, And, and remember, we, we got two minutes left. Um, I, know, I know. I know. I
0: feel bad saying all that. I know. No, sorry. you're good.
1: But let me just let me put it this way. Um, I, what I try to do on my channel is I try to present what I do think is a different way to communicate maybe the same truths. Right. Because mm-hmm. as I said before, I I think, you know, the the way in which you say something does matter. And, and I don't think let me put it this way. I believe that God is good. I believe that the theology I hold is what God has revealed. And therefore these ideas are good. And, Mm -hmm. and so it it is not a toxic thing. Now it can be weaponized and used in horrible ways. And, And look, let me say this. A lot of the people that you call out, call out on your channel, I agree with you. I'm like, yeah, Tim, like, that's right. And I've, look, I, I've, personally, privately messaged pro-life apologists who have dehumanized political leaders in publicly, where they publicly posted that this political leader is garbage and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you are a pro-life apologist who prides yourself on that all people are valuable and worthy of dignity and respect. And yet, how are you dignifying this person when you dehumanize them and equate them yeah. to a piece of garbage? Like, That's so inconsistent. And I've called people out publicly and privately for that. So I, so, so I'm, I'm with you there. And I think that's where this can lead to a whole nother conversation is, is, is within that. Then there's a whole conversation on, do we just give up evangelical and and start something else because it has been used inappropriately in many ways. And so we just abandon that. Uh, Well, then what am I, am I something different or do we try to reform and renew and, 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 and and help people see a better definition of evangelical to where I can say, look, I'm an evangelical and I recognize that word has a lot of baggage. And so do I use it? Do I not use it? it. That's a whole debate. The yeah. issue that I come down to is how do I come alongside the church in my ministry who holds to some of these theological views where we will disagree theologically on, on what scripture teaches, but present it in a way that you're not dehumanizing, where you can have a queer individual sitting in the audience that says, I, I, I maybe disagree with you, but I feel seen, respected, loved, heard, even though you hold to the idea that." Something is sinful or something is wrong or something, whatever that may be. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think I'm, I'm with you that there's been a lot of damage done um, and we need to do better. And that's part of why I exist and trying to train people to engage these issues better. And so yeah. I appreciate that I think, about our I conversations.
0: I think we see a lot of the same things. I think we have different priorities, you know. Like for me, First Corinthians five comes to mind. Like Paul's pretty clear. Like, hey, uh, expel the wicked person from among you. Like, don't judge the world, or else you would have no one, no nowhere to go. Essentially, you know. But call out the church. And to me, it's like, you know, when there's such rampant sexual abuse, when you have things like Paul Pressler in the SBC, John MacArthur hiding these people who are. Uh, you know, um, essaying uh, uh, children or essaying young men. And like the focus for evangelicalism is, well, the gays it's like, uh, even if you thought it was immoral, you have plenty of sexual immorality to handle in-house that are embedded into your systems of power and structures that, that influence a lot of people. So maybe start there and get that massive log out of your own eye, and then we can talk about like the cultural issue or thing that we find ourselves in. But to me, and I, I, I'm not saying you would disagree with seeing the issue, but my emphasis is totally there um, and is totally away from some of these culture war issues on in the sense of like, well, but also gay people. It's like, no, like I I don't think about that at all. Like that's not even, even a thought for me. I love my queer friends. Like I fully affirm who they are. I ha, you want, you want abuse and sexual morality. Here you go. Here's a bunch of people that we could talk about right now and get them out of the church. That's just yeah. kind of how I, how I would do it.
1: Yeah. And I'll leave it this. And if you have one last comment, but it's like, I agree that sometimes there is an overemphasis, right? Where I hear stories of like the, the gay couple in the youth group gets kicked out versus the, the boyfriend and girlfriend who are having sex and sleeping together. It's like, well, that's what teenagers do. You know, it's like, no, like we, we need to be consistent. Right. And there's often been an inconsistency and I've heard many stories of inconsistency. Um, however, I, let me just say it this way. The reason why I address the issues that I address more than others is I don't have anyone, and this isn't the best excuse, but I don't have anyone coming to me at, advocating for abuse within the church or, you know, uh, or these sort of issues saying, Hey, this is good. We need to support it that I need to come out and defend. And I'd also don't have people asking me about that. When I go do Q and A's, no one's like, Hey, do you think it's okay to, for a pastor to have sex with another woman that's not his wife? Like no one's, but when I go to Q and A's and when I do live streams on here in Q and A's, I'm constantly asked about homosexuality and transgenderism. And so then that just becomes naturally the thing I talk about more because that is, the topic of today. And so sometimes that can lead to, uh, I only care about X and not Y, because that's what I'm getting talked about versus, yeah, what maybe is important. So um, I agree with you there. There needs to be, though, more consistency on how we address uh issues within the church and outside. <coughs> so final uh, comment? It's
0: your show. You know you have the final word. It's your show.
1: All right, Sam. Well, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me, having this conversation. I'm glad that we could finally have it and 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 Thanks. have a better, uh, more than 60 seconds. Uh, now yeah, it's 60 minutes or 63 <laughs> minutes. Uh, but I know this conversation will continue and there's, it brought up a lot more stuff. And so maybe in the future, yeah. we'll have another uh, show, another conversation. But um, I linked to uh, your Instagram, your stuff are below. Actually, I'm going to in a little bit. Uh, anything else you just want to say as far as like, uh, you know, what you're doing?
0: No, no, that's yeah. it. I appreciate you having me on. It was, it was a great conversation.
1: All right. Um, all right. Thank you so much. Here, Let me, I forgot to do this really quick. Let me just do a closing intro. All right. All right, everybody. I, hey, I hope that was uh, interesting and fun for you and just getting some different perspective and hopefully, Hey, Tim and I, we, we appreciate each other. Uh, it goes back a long time and uh, our conversations, our friendship. And so um, hopefully this is helpful, beneficial, seeing things from a different perspective and learning how to do this well. And that is uh, what I want to emphasize here is how do we come alongside hearing other sides and doing it well. And, and for me, it also, well, hey, sticking to what we believe. It's clearly Tim did that. I did that as well. So anyways, a bunch of shows are going to pop up here on the side to continue to help you think well. I didn't say this at the beginning, but my name's Ryan Polly. This is your show Think Well, training you to think well about the Christian faith and engage, engage the culture well. I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks, but I'm going to have some videos and lectures that I've done at different conferences coming out. Uh, but, but coming back on like the 18th or 19th is when I'll jump back into my series, walking through our middle. Bobby's book on why there is no God. So you can look for that next live video then. Until then, there'll be some other kind of lectures coming out. And uh until all those things, and hey, until the rest of this, or while you go throughout the rest of your week, I don't know what I'm saying right now. Have a blessed rest of your week. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for watching, and thanks for being here. Have a good one. I
0: just i